You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Diversion Podcasts. This episode contains descriptions of graphic violence and scenes of genocide. Listener's discretion is advised. Mio had gotten a step closer to the butcher. He'd come back from their road trip to the plantations in the Brazilian jungle, thinking he was making progress. The butcher was starting to trust him. Mio sat down to write a report to Yariv. He was expected to fill in his boss with every major development. At the same time Mio was drawing up his report, things were starting to heat up with the statute of limitations, which was the whole reason for the mission, to stop the Germans from giving Nazi killers a free pass for their atrocities. Here's Abner Avraham again, the former Mossad agent and historian of the agency. I mean, if you compare it, for example, to bin Laden in September 11, it was a revenge. But in the Mossad, when they decided to kill someone and the prime minister confirmed this target, it was to prevent him and to prevent uh, more terror attacks and more killing of Jews. That, that was the idea. I'm Stephen Talty, and this is Good Assassins, Hunting the Butcher. So if the first part was to find a Nazi and bring him for a trial, the second part was to find a Nazi and kill him. We 
must thwart this shameful process. The end of a trail of blood and horror. The end of a man whose name will be written in infamy. Episode 6, The Kill Team. By the end of 1964, the world was waking up to the fact that the Germans really intended to go ahead with the amnesty. So the Jewish resistance was stepping up their efforts to try and stop it. Tuvia Friedman, the Nazi hunter who'd met with the German justice minister, was giving interviews in Israel and encouraging world leaders to speak out. He was keeping an eye on Germany, hoping to pressure and shame its politicians into stopping the amnesty. As the cause gained more traction, protesters appeared on the streets of Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. Soon they would spread all over the world, from New York to London. Friedman was good one-on-one. With his eyewitness accounts of the Holocaust, he could persuade people. Earlier, when the head of the Socialist Party in Germany came to Israel, Friedman went to see him. In the lobby of his hotel, an Israeli security agent spotted Friedman coming through the front doors. The agent hurried over, almost blocking Friedman from making it to the elevators. The guy was pale, nervous. He thought the activist was up to no good. The agent asked if Friedman was there to assassinate the German leader. Friedman laughed. The guy knew his reputation. But Friedman told the agent that no, he was just going to talk to the politician. The agent let him pass. Friedman went upstairs and made his presentation to the German official. It was powerful stuff. A few hours later, the socialist leader agreed to oppose the amnesty. It was another small coup for Friedman in his campaign to sway the German government. Importantly, another much more famous Nazi hunter joined the cause, Simon Wiesenthal. Wiesenthal had barely survived World War II, having been imprisoned in four concentration camps between 1941 and 1945. In 1943, he was in a Polish camp when his commander decided to celebrate Hitler's birthday by executing 54 Jewish intellectuals, one for every year of the Fuhrer's life. Wiesenthal was chosen to be one of them. He listened as the others were shot. Before the killers came to him, though, someone called his name. One of the Germans had convinced the commander that Wiesenthal, who was an accomplished artist, should paint a poster of Hitler instead of being murdered. He was led away from the pits and later escaped from the camp. Wiesenthal made it through, but he lost his family. Weeks after the war ended, he was already hunting down Nazis. That quest would occupy him for the rest of his life. Wiesenthal did everything. He spent months digging through archives. He staked out apartment buildings, waiting for ex-Nazis to show up. And unlike Friedman, he made friends in high places, recruiting politicians and celebrities to his mission. He'd had some major successes. When Anne Frank's diary became a worldwide bestseller, some Austrians claimed it was a fake. They said that Anne Frank had never existed, and they challenged Wiesenthal to find Karl Silberbauer, the man who had supposedly arrested her. Wiesenthal went to work. 
After months of searching, in which Wiesenthal spent hours combing through Nazi records and Dutch phone books, he found Silberbauer was working as a policeman in Vienna. Wiesenthal exposed him, and Silberbauer admitted that Anne Frank had indeed existed, and her memoir was truthful. It was a major blow to Holocaust deniers. Wiesenthal tracked down Eric Rajakowicz, who'd been in charge of putting Jews from the Netherlands on the trains to their deaths. Wiesenthal found Rajakowicz living in Italy, where a Catholic bishop had helped the Nazi, even letting him live in a local convent. By the early 60s, Rajakowicz was a millionaire several times over and living a comfortable life. Wiesenthal uncovered his past, and the Nazi's picture appeared on the front pages of newspapers all over Europe. He went on the run, first to Switzerland, then to Germany. But Wiesenthal wouldn't give up. He found him again, and finally the killer gave up. He was thrown in jail. So Simon Wiesenthal was good at what he did. He was a master publicist and self-promoter. But he was just as obsessed with finding the men and women responsible for the genocide and bringing Nazis to justice. You're not just married to me. Wiesenthal's wife used to tell him, you're married to the six million. To further his cause, Wiesenthal had even become a Mossad operative. The agency sent him an allowance, a few hundred dollars a month, to help with his quest. Here's Wiesenthal explaining the significance of the statute of limitations. After that time, uh, we, uh, when we will find new people, they commit crimes or find new evidence about people, uh, they are free. We cannot bring them for justice in Germany. And this means thousands. This means thousands of people because uh, we lost 11 million witnesses. Like Friedman, Simon Wiesenthal went to meet with the justice minister in Germany about the coming amnesty. He wanted to know what would happen if the statute went into effect. Around 6,000 men had served at Auschwitz. Only a tiny number of them less than 1% had even been brought to trial. When the statute went into effect, would the rest all go free? The German minister avoided the question. He started talking about the billions of Deutschmarks in reparations that Germany had paid to survivors. Wiesenthal seethed. He wasn't there to talk about money. He was there to talk about punishment. It was once more a case of us simply not speaking the same language. I told him, he had ministered the murderer of my mother and the murderers of many of my relations and friends have not been found yet. I don't even know their names. I am addressing the minister of justice, not the finance minister. I recognize the federal republic's financial efforts, but surely they cannot be a substitute for efforts to achieve justice. I have come to you with a very specific question. What happens after May 8? That was the date the amnesty was supposed to go into effect, May 8, 1965. The minister didn't give Wiesenthal an answer. In fact, he was starting to sound slippery on the whole issue. Did he support the amnesty or didn't he? He told Wiesenthal it wasn't up to him to decide. The Nazi hunter wasn't satisfied. He decided to launch a PR campaign to let people around the world know what was going on. Wiesenthal was brilliant at that kind of thing. 
He had the kind of marketing skills, the vision, that Tuvia Friedman lacked. Wiesenthal wrote an open letter condemning the statute. He called the amnesty an unprecedented injustice toward the millions of victims of Nazi brutality. Once the murderers knew they would never be prosecuted, Wiesenthal wrote, they would link arms with other enemies of liberty. They would spread their propaganda and poison to the young people of Germany and then abroad. Wiesenthal was broadening the issue beyond the Holocaust. If the West Germans let the killers of six million get away with it, the world would be a far more dangerous place for everybody. Wiesenthal sent a letter to famous people in Europe, America, and elsewhere. The great American playwright Arthur Miller signed it, as did a Nobel Prize-winning physicist. The future Pope Benedict XVI announced his support. His own cousin, who had Down syndrome, had been murdered by the Nazis. Dozens and dozens of others joined the campaign, artists, politicians, religious leaders. Even Robert Kennedy, who was still recovering from the assassination of his brother, JFK, sent a telegram. Moral duties, it read, have no term. Robert Kennedy came out against Germany's planned amnesty. But the efforts of the two Nazi hunters, Friedman and Wiesenthal, were, in the winter of 1964, having little effect in Germany. Opinion polls there still showed the statute was popular. The numbers, they weren't budging. The two activists believed they were losing the fight. Which could make Mossad Zucker's mission that much more important. It was the final piece that could sway the debate. A last shot. Mio wrote out his report on his trip with Zuckers to the plantation. When he was finished, he took a business letter that he'd already typed out and copied out the report in invisible ink, inserting the text between the lines. Then he folded the letter, put it in an airmail envelope, and sent it off to his boss, Yariv, in Paris. Mio's use of invisible ink intrigued me. It's something that, of course, I've seen dozens of times in spy novels and movies. But I kind of assumed that in real life, invisible ink would be a bit too crude for a sophisticated agency like the Mossad. So I checked with an intelligence historian named H. Keith Melton. And turns out it was actually a widespread tactic at the time. Invisible inks have been used for probably a thousand years or thousands of years, uh, going back ultimately to lemon juice. And, you know, if you take lemon juice, write a secret message between the lines and then hold it up to a flame, you, you can see it becomes visible. So the, the standard component of all invisible inks is the ink itself, and the reagent is the way you make it visible. Uh, and services develop extraordinarily complex secret inks. But you can create a, a secret ink out of saliva, out of water, you could use it out of diluted blood. You could use it from sperm. You could use it from bodily fluids. Secret inks can be made out of a variety of things. Water is probably one of the most interesting because just water can later be detected by intelligence service. In general, invisible ink has fallen out of use today. But according to Melton, that might be the very reason not to discount it entirely. The Russian service quit searching and quit teaching skills for secret inks around the year 2000. So it was in use before then. Uh, but sometimes 
tradecraft becomes so forgotten about and so old, it becomes usable again because no one's looking for it. And I, I don't believe the U.S. Postal Service has a capability to detect secret inks anymore where they certainly would have had that 50, 60, 70 years ago. Back to Mio. He now had a much better feel for Zuckers, what might work in getting him to another country and what wouldn't. In his report, he wrote that the plantation trip had been worthwhile because he was conditioning Zuckers to get comfortable with longer and longer trips away from home. This was key. He couldn't just spring a flight to say, Chile on the butcher. He had to build up to that, slowly, step by step, to make sure that Zuckers would follow him wherever he went. There was also the question of the assassination method. Mossad had many ways to take someone out, what they called targeted killings. In 1962, when the Egyptians began building rockets at a facility in the desert called Factory 333, Mossad knew the missiles would eventually be aimed at Israel. They mailed two package bombs to the factory, killing five workers there. Later, there were book bombs, one of which targeted a PLO operative named Bassam Sharif. Sharif survived, and we were actually able to find a tape of him discussing the incident. Ah, that was a lousy day. <laughs> that morning when the book came to me, the mailman said, well, you have a book, and uh, it's stamped. I looked at the envelope. It was open. The envelope was open, and the book was protruding out and stamped by the Lebanese government, checked clear from explosives. So I was relaxed a little bit, and the moment I opened that, you know, I discovered it. It's part of the second. I've seen the explosive, two charges. They have hollowed the book and put two explosive charges, one in an upward di direction and one in a downward direction, so that it will cut me into three pieces, my head and my neck. I was standing. That's why I managed to survive, probably. The Palestinian poet and terrorist, Mohammed Boudia, opened the door of his car parked on a Paris street. Mossad had planted a pressure-activated bomb underneath the driver's seat. As soon as Boudia sat down, it went off, and Boudia was killed. Other targets of Mossad simply disappeared. That's what happened to one German scientist, Heinz Krug, who's helping Egypt build those missiles in the desert. He worked out of Munich. Mossad sent a surveillance team there to learn Krug's movements. Then, early one evening, Krug received a phone call from a man pretending to be a friend of the Egyptian general who's heading up the missile program. Something important had come up, and the man requested a meeting at the Ambassador Hotel in Munich. Krug suspected nothing. He went to the meeting and met the man, who was actually a Mossad operative. They discussed business. The next day, the operative picked him up for another round of discussions. He brought him to a villa in the suburbs. Krug went into the villa expecting to meet one of the Egyptian commanders. Inside, there was a Mossad team waiting for him. They hit him on the head and put him, still alive, in a secret compartment inside a VW camper. He was driven to Marseille, France, sedated, put on an airplane, and flown to Israel. There, Krug was roughed up and interrogated. After spilling his secrets over many months, a Mossad agent was ordered to take him to a deserted area north of Tel Aviv 
and kill him. Krug's body was then loaded aboard an Israeli military plane and dumped into the sea. Some Mossad assassins used handguns, though the cliché method, a rifle fired from a long distance, never seemed to be part of their repertoire. One PLO man was shot by a guy driving by on a motorcycle. Another target was pushed into traffic and was killed by a passing car. There was even a target who was dosed with radioactive material and later died. Years later, another suspected victim of Mossad, a scientist who doubled as a colonel in the Egyptian army, fell, quote-unquote, from a balcony in Alexandria. When Egyptian police entered his apartment, they found the gas had been turned on and there were cuts in the scientist's arms, both signs pointing to a suicide attempt. Mossad had made it look like the man had tried to kill himself three different ways and finally succeeded. It had all the hallmarks of an Israeli hit. Mossad didn't claim responsibility because Mossad never claims responsibility. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. I wanted to let you know about something we're trying. 
we've set up an email address for listeners to send us your questions about the show. Are you curious about something you've heard on Hunting the Butcher and want to know more? Is there something I haven't covered that you wish I would? I want to hear from you. Record yourself asking your question. The Voice Memos app on iPhone works well. Include your name and where you're from, and we'll try to answer your question on a future episode. The email address is huntingthebutcher at diversionpodcasts.com. Record yourself asking a question and email it to me. Again, the email address is huntingthebutcher at diversionpodcasts.com. That's podcasts, plural, with an S at the end. I'm looking forward to hearing your questions. Thanks. Now, on with the show. So Mio had options for the assassination method, but he hadn't made up his mind on which was the best way to go. How should it be done? What would be the safest way? A bullet from afar? Perhaps poisoning? Maybe a point-blank shot in the back of the head? He had to know more about the butcher before he could decide. With his report completed, Mio got back in touch with Zuckers. The butcher proposed another scouting trip for Kunz's tourist business this time to a town on the Brazilian coast called Santos. Mio jumped at the opportunity. A plan was starting to form in his head, a plan for the death of Herbert Zuckers. He wanted to test out a couple of ideas for it, so he told Zuckers they would check out the market for rental homes in Santos, get the prices, see how many were full this time of year. If it looked good, his company might start investing. Mio drove with Zuckers to the coast, got a room at a nice hotel. The next morning, Mio set up a routine. They would find a rental home that was on the market and arrange a visit. They talked to the owner, see what the properties were like and how much they were going for. Zuckers thought he was helping Kunzla out with his business research. He did some interpreting. He spoke good Portuguese. Had Mio actually been looking to make investments, Zuckers would have been pretty useful. One of the ideas Mio had for the assassination was to bring the butcher to a house in another of the South American countries and have the kill team waiting there for him. It would be private, safe, and it would give the team time alone with Zuckers to read him his sentence. This option had a lot going for it. But if the plan was going to work, Mew had to train Zuckers. Walking into strange houses had to be automatic for him. After Santos, Zuckers suggested they hit another beach town, Port Alegre. Zuckers was having a good time. Mio was paying all the bills, nice restaurants, good hotels. It was like a preview of coming attractions. If he could get on board with Kunzla's company, this would be his life from now on. He liked it. Mio was buttering up the butcher. You have no idea how glad I am we met, I told the butcher. It must have been the fate that brought us together. You are at home here, you know the South American language, and how to do business here. Mio agreed to meet Zuckers in Port Alegre a few days later. They traveled there separately. After Mio checked into their hotel, he went to Zucker's room. He knocked on the door. Then he got a shock. Some seconds passed. Suddenly... The door was pulled open to reveal Zuckers standing there 
a gun in his hand. <laughs> the snake is always on his toes, I thought. I pointed at the gun, I said uh, <laughs> half jokingly, so what is it, Herbert? You scared of me? If you had a long nose, then I would have a good reason to be scared, Tsuka said. Anyway, one must always be on the alert. He returns a gun to his pocket. Mio tried to laugh it off, but he could see that the butcher was actually nervous. It wasn't a good sign. Mio drove around Port Alegre with Zuckers, looking at houses. At one point, Zuckers was in the passenger seat talking about tourism when Mio heard him mention a name, Joseph Kramer. Mio managed to keep his eyes on the road. He controlled his breathing, showing no reaction. But inside, he was reeling. Joseph Kramer? Most Jews who'd lost people in the Holocaust knew the name. The Belson war criminals arrive at Lüneburg for trial. Their faces give little clue to what they're thinking. Last out of the lorry is Josef Kramer, the beast of Belson. The calm orderliness of the scene contrasts violently with the ghastly pictures which shocked the country when they were shown in British newsreels. Kramer was the infamous beast of Belsen, the former commander of the concentration camp Auschwitz-Birkenau II. Hundreds of thousands of Jews had died under his watch. He'd personally selected Jews for death. In fact, he seemed to enjoy it. Kramer was known to have been exceptionally brutal to the Jewish prisoners, sometimes whipping them until their skin flayed off. Like Zuckers, Kramer had denied everything after the war. He told prosecutors the stories about him were, quote, products of the Jews' imagination. Kramer was captured by the British and tried in the months following the end of the war in what's known as the Belson Trial. Kramer was convicted and sentenced to death. He was hanged on December 13th, 1945. Mio kept driving, but his mind was going a mile a minute. Why would Zuckers bring up Joseph Kramer? He hadn't even been talking about the war. He just dropped it into the middle of a boring little monologue about some topic Mio only half remembered. It was just strange. It was as if the butcher was testing Mio in a language he would understand only if he were someone other than Anton Kunzla. If he were, say, a double agent. Couldn't Zuckers be speaking to Mio in a kind of code, saying, I know why you're here, and it isn't to make money. Mio couldn't be sure. But he was worried. Back in Paris, Yosef Yariv had been busy. It was his job to recruit the rest of the team that would fly to South America to join Mio and carry out the sentence on the butcher. Body men, a kill team. When Yariv was done, he'd assembled an intriguing collection of men. If you saw them walking down the street, you wouldn't have thought Mossad assassination squad. They didn't seem like guys that were going to be sent halfway around the world to take care of a notorious murderer. First, it was Yariv himself. He was a pretty unusual choice for the chief of an intelligence unit. Yariv died in 1998. I went to Israel to speak with his daughter, Lihi, and she described him to me. My father was a very sensitive person, full of uh, maybe contradictions, if you can say that. On the one hand, he, he was a bohemian person. 
Uh, his best friends were artists and theater players, and he had a great sense of humor. You know, if you heard his laughter, you couldn't stop laughing with him together. And he saw everything as a very humorous thing. But on the other hand, he used to tell me not everything is a joke. Don't, don't think that everything is a, is a game or a joke. Just take it seriously. So on the one hand, he was very serious. He was the most reliable person on earth. If you were his friend, you could rely on him to the end of your life. I mean, he would save you from everything <laughs> you went through. You knew that he was your friend. That was it. And um, he was really charismatic without being aware of it. Really, when he entered the room, the room was uh, filled with his um, entity. Unlike Mio the introvert, Yariv seemed to know everyone. He had a big personality, and he attracted people to him with his wit. And one of the men Yariv had gotten to know in Mossad was an agent named Eliezer Laser Sudit. As with Mio, Sudit didn't look much like a secret agent. He was thin and physically unremarkable. My father was just opposite of James Bond. He had to walk twice in the street so you can uh, see him. That's Sadiq's son, Ze'ev Sharon. I spoke to him about his father and his memories of his father's undercover work. He was modest. He was funny. Everybody loved him. He was very ordinary, you know, very nice guy. And looking at him, you cannot imagine that you see a fighter. But Sadiq had a reputation as someone who was tough and relentless, a fearless, hot-headed fighter who never gave up. He had spent his early days in Etzel, or the Ergun, a right-wing paramilitary organization in Palestine. He conquered Jaffa after the, everybody said that he cannot get it because there was snipers all over. And he told Begin, give me another night, an explosive, and I will conquer Jaffa. And he did it with his men. He'd come of age during the struggle for a Jewish homeland. He met his wife, a nurse, when she treated him for several broken fingers, the result of a torture session administered by a rival organization. Their love affair played out against the bombings of the War of Independence. They'd seen the birth of the nation together, said his son. They'd fought for it. They were always telling stories about the early days of Israel. Sadiq was the ultimate light, dark character, the mercurial, soulful Sabra with a sad past. A Sabra is a native-born Israeli. Sadiq's wife was the tough one. When he received an invitation to join Mossad from a future Israeli prime minister, his wife didn't bat an eye. It was Yitzhak Shamir that uh, called him and told him if he wanted to join the Mossad. So he came to my mother and asked her if she accepts. She said, all right, look, if you are not going to go, I will go, and you stay home to educate our children. And my family was also a joke that 
it's a miracle that he went not my mother because if he was saying to educate us we will be <laughs> no education at all Sadiq was soft kind funny and uh, okay he was a wonderful father you know sometimes you think that somebody that uh, working the Mossad and uh, he killed criminals it should be something very frightening no just ordinary nice guy and apparently the kind of guy who would carry out pranks during missions Yariv decided to bring Sudit onto the kill team it was a risky choice Sudit had been involved in a notorious previous mission the plot to kill the German chancellor Konrad Adenauer in March 1952 Sudit's commander at the time was angry that the German government was paying Israel reparations he considered it to be blood money the kill team used a letter bomb to try and get Adenauer, but it exploded before it reached him. It did, however, kill the technician who was trying to defuse the bomb. Sadiq was arrested in Paris, where he was living at the time. He was later released. If something went wrong with the Zucker's mission and Sadiq's identity was revealed, it could be a big deal in Germany. It could actually convince Germans not to repeal the amnesty, Sudit had once tried to kill the head of the German government, after all. But Yariv liked Sudit. He insisted he be on the team. Sudit's mother and grandmother had been born in Riga, the capital of Latvia. That's where the butcher had done most of his killing. Most of Sudit's family had lived there before the war. None of them had survived the Holocaust. Maybe Zuckers had been involved in their deaths. Sudit didn't know for sure. After Yariv told Sudit about the butcher, the agent agreed to do the mission. But it wasn't about revenge. There was no hatred of Zuckers, Sudit's son told me emphatically. None. Sudit saw it as a chance to send a message to anti-Semites everywhere. If someone killed Jews in the future, other Jews would find them. This lack of desire for revenge might not have been true of the rest of the kill team. Some of them certainly wanted vengeance for what had happened during the Holocaust. But for Sudit, this was protection against future atrocities. It wasn't personal for him, like it was for Mio. After Sudit, Yariv added two more operatives. The first was Zev Amit, a former paratrooper and devotee of martial arts. Amit was a very brave guy, typical Sabra, said Sudit's son. He was proud of the country, knew what he wanted, had no self-doubts. Amit had served in Unit 101, it was a controversial special forces team commanded by future prime minister Ariel Sharon. Its members were hand-picked, and they specialized in reprisal raids on Arab infiltrators. Those infiltrators regularly crossed the border from Jordan and attacked Israeli villages. Critics accused the 101ers of killing Arabs indiscriminately, especially during one massacre that happened in 1953. In it, at least 69 Palestinians died when Sharon's men waded into the heavily guarded village and began clearing houses by tossing grenades and spraying the insides with live rounds. But most Israelis considered them intrepid soldiers who lived far out on the knife's edge. Sadiq was delighted when Amit joined the operation. They were a team of two, said Sadiq's son. They were always making jokes, even when perhaps they shouldn't have. The last man Yariv chose was Moti Kafir, an agent who'd grown up 
tending sheep on an Israeli farm. He later attended the Sorbonne, where he'd studied history. At Mossad, Kafir worked as director of the School for Special Operations. Amit and Kafir would be body men, there to neutralize the butcher when the time came. Yariv now had his five guys, including himself. That was it. That was the team. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey, this is Stephen Talty, the host of this podcast, Good Assassins Hunting the Butcher. As I've mentioned a couple of times on the show, this podcast project came out of my work on a related book called The Good Assassin. If you want to explore other parts of this story, check it out. It's not just a book version of the podcast. I spend time on different aspects of the mission. There are chapters diving into World War II history that we didn't cover in the podcast, and the book works as a kind of a companion to the listening experience. The paperback edition just arrived. You can purchase a copy of The Good Assassin on Amazon, Apple Books, and on bookshop.org. Thanks. There was one problem with Yuri's kill team. 
none of the guys was very big. Yariv was short and thin, same for Sadiq. Amit was a bit stronger, but he wasn't nearly as big as Zucker's. And Mio, he was meant to be an observer only. The team would need to train in how to bring down a strong, desperate man who has just realized he's fighting for his life. In those days in the early 60s, Mossad didn't have guys who specialized in things like that. So Yariv started asking around. Who could teach his men how to bring down a brute like the butcher? The takedown had to be fast, and it had to be quiet. Finally, Yariv found a guy. His name was Emi Lichtenfeld. Here's Emi explaining his philosophy on self-defense and the fighting technique he created called Krav Maga. This tape's not great at times, but I wanted you to hear Emi in his own voice. The fundament of the Krav Maga is self-defense. And until self-defense is built up the whole Krav Maga. What is self-defense? Self-defense is that you can defend yourself in 360 degrees from all directions and all angles. Because I make short and natural movements and I don't get the bullet or I don't get the knife. To understand how Emi trained the team, I reached out to one of Emi's closest disciples. My name is Elia Nirov. I started uh, training with Emi when I was uh, about 15 years old. I trained with him uh, 24 years until he decided to leave to another world. Yes, um, I was his closest assistant uh, for well, like 20 years almost. According to Eyal, Emi was a bit of a walking paradox. Emi was, in a way, a very gentle person, gentleman, Central European education. Um, on the other hand, he had this other side of his, of a very strong fighter, in time of need, even a brawler. In times that was, you know, World War II period, and a little bit before, which we cannot judge with today's eyes. So he was definitely a man of peace on one hand, and a man of uh, fighting, protecting, uh, teaching how to kill on the other hand. Lichtenfeld had grown up in Bratislava, Czechoslovakia, before the war, the son of a hard-nosed police inspector who moonlighted as a jiu-jitsu master. Lichtenfeld's father taught his son gymnastics, boxing, and wrestling. As a young man, Lichtenfeld appeared bare-chested in publicity photos, looking like a lean, sculpted middleweight. He joined the Czechoslovakian national wrestling team and won championships across Europe. Even at five foot six and 150 pounds, he was a relentless, punishing opponent. With the rise of Nazism in Germany, anti-Semitic gangs began swarming into the Jewish quarter in Bratislava, where the young Lichtenfeld lived. If they caught a Jew alone, the gang would attack him, leaving him bludgeoned on the pavement or bleeding out from stab wounds. The fascist government in Bratislava offered terrified Jews little or no defense against these mobs. The perpetrators went unpunished. Eyal remembers Emi describing the situation to him. On a daily basis, like every day, there were fights. Most of the fights, I would say, or a big part of it, was against multiple opponents. So this uh, fighting the fascists, day, night, morning, evenings, on a, on a regular basis, what we say. And uh, sometimes 
huge groups. So Imi became the uncrowned leader of a group of about 100 people. And later years, we learned that he was also teaching them something, some self-defense and fighting. Here's a great story. One afternoon, Lichtenfeld collected the boxers, wrestlers, and amateur bodybuilders he knew from the quarter and marched them out to confront a large group of Czech men who'd arrived at the gate. There were hundreds of young thugs waiting. Lichtenfeld, carrying a large blue and white flag adorned with the Star of David, led the Jewish athletes out of the neighborhood. When he spotted the Czechs, he began waving it back and forth in front of them, like a red handkerchief. Who is the man to take down my flag? Who is the man to take down my flag, he shouted. One guy emerged from the crowd and came toward Emi, grabbing at the flagpole. Emi took hold of the man's arm, hoisted him up, and threw him over a cemetery wall. The riders ran away. Later encounters turned into ultra-violent melees. The Czechs brought knives and even revolvers to terrorize the Jews. Their confrontations were accompanied by screams, gunshots, and the thud of bodies on stone. A wasted move could mean a smashed collarbone severed vein. The Imi said there was no time to punch a person twice. So dynamic, so vicious, so fast. And as I said, as he said, no time to punch a person twice. To survive, Lichtenfeld created this street fighting technique called Krav Maga, close combat in Hebrew, which allowed the Bratislava Jews to inflict the most damage in the shortest possible time. According to Eyal, Imi's genius was in the simplicity of his method. Do the most natural, the most simple, based on your natural responses on one thing, but also based on the problem and on the behavior of the attacker. So you must know your enemy first of all, yes? Know what he's doing, know, know the problem, know the attack, know the response of the other guy, know his natural behavior, but also know yours. So the basic techniques of the system are based on natural responses. So the natural response is the foundation of the technique. What he taught was ruthlessly real world. Unlike traditional martial arts, one academy proclaimed in an ad, Krav Maga makes no attempt to transform you into a spiritually enlightened warrior. Lichtenfeld left Czechoslovakia the year after the Nazis invaded, losing an eye in a painful two-year journey toward Palestine, which he finally reached in 1942. His mother died at Auschwitz-Birkenau, and most of his other loved ones were killed in the Holocaust. Word of Lichtenfeld's expertise in the vicious arts spread. In 1948, the Israeli Defense Forces adopted Krav Maga for training its recruits and named the Czech newcomer chief instructor physical fitness. Lichtenfeld, dressed in a white karate uniform, spent decades teaching generation after generation of young soldiers how to gouge, hit, and maim. And most importantly, how to be smart about it. Here's Imi again. He gives him a kick. He throws him, uh, rolls him on the stomach. He gives him another kick. He breaks his head. I said, tell me, what you break a dead man's head? <laughs> if you broke him two ribs, one here and one here, he can stand up. He said, No. For what you break his son? <laughs> if you give him the kick in the head, he's dead. 
When he was contacted by Yariv, Lichtenfeld agreed to train the team. He didn't care about what the men would do with the skills he taught them, which doesn't come as a surprise to Eyal. He understood the need to make the mission. It's not my business what they are going to do. My country is calling me. There is a need. I give them the tools, their commanders, and them, they will use the tools. It was all in the end the same thing for him. He assumed they were going to hurt those who wanted to hurt Jews. Imi never asked why, nor did he dwell too much on the request he had received. Namely, to take a group of men and teach them how to drop a man with one aimed blow. You can't help but suspect a subconscious motive in choosing Krav Maga. Even Israelis believed that during the war, pale, slight Jewish men had been lent to their deaths by strapping robust killers, something many of the Sabras regarded with shame. Now a group of tough Israeli Jews plan to find one of those murderers and strike him to the ground with their bare hands. It would be a tactical way of ensuring silence and stealth. But one has to imagine it was something else as well, a display of Jewish masculine power. Not everyone, however, was pleased with Lichtenfeld or with the plan to immobilize Zuckers before reading him his death sentence. When the outspoken Sudit heard about it, he was appalled. It's not a movie, he fumed. Bring a gun. In secret, the team began to train. Lichtenfeld led the sessions, and he was relentless. Mio had no idea the other team members were training in Krav Maga. That was Yariv's thing. Mio didn't need to know about it. Had he known, he would have been pleased that the other agents were practicing eye-gouging, groin kicking, and other moves. Because he had come to fear Zucker's physical abilities. He even put this in the report he sent back to Yariv in Paris. I reiterated and stressed the fact that despite the late fan's age of 64, he was still a dangerous man, alert, physically strong, and resourceful. Later, Mia would realize something. Yariv and the others didn't believe him at all. My friends thought I was exaggerating the danger. Yariv and the other agents had been to war. They'd fought young men who were dead set on killing them. They thought they could handle the butcher. When they read Mio's report, Yariv and the others were deeply skeptical. They thought Mio was seeing things in Brazil. Knocking off an aging Nazi with white hair? It wasn't going to be a problem. But Yariv would later change his mind. Here's Lihi again, Yariv's daughter. He used to say that Tukors was a huge person, just a huge that you couldn't imagine before. I mean, as many times as you were told before, until you really saw him, you couldn't imagine how gigantic he was. But that change of heart came months after Mio's report, when it was almost too late. This overconfidence would soon cause terrible problems for the Mossad team. Mio had seen the butcher up close. The others had no idea what they were dealing with. But they were soon going to find out. (music) 
Good Assassins, Hunting the Butcher is a production of Diversion Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio. This season is written and hosted by Stephen Talty. Produced and directed by Scott Waxman and Jacob Bronstein. Executive producers Scott Waxman and Mark Francis. Story editing by Jacob Bronstein with editorial direction from Scott Waxman and Mangesh Hatikadu. Editing, mixing, and sound design by Mark Francis. With the voices of Nick Afka Thomas, Omri Angle, Andrew Polk, Mindy Escobar Leance, Steve Routman, and Stefan Rudnitsky. Theme music by Tyler Cash. Archival research by Adam Shapiro. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum at UTA. Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.